0: I've, I've enjoyed playing here. It's been over 20 years that I've, I've been coming to Rome, Melbourne. This week golf should be played.
1: We love coming down under.
2: Look, it's phenomenal to play. The quality of the golf has been great. But the enthusiasm of the people has been the thing that's just been amazing.
1: Tier of courses that I'm willing to shave my neck for in Kingston Heath, in Victoria, get me out of bed to shave. Especially somewhere like Australia in the sand belt. And I have so many great memories of being down there.
0: G'day and welcome back to Australian Golf Passport. I'm Scott Warren. I'm joined as always by Matt Mollica. G'day, Matty. Hi, Scott. I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to tonight's chat on a course that we've covered briefly and controversially in the first episode. Uh, hopefully, I can redeem myself with the with the metropolitan members and fans in our in our audience. Of course, we'll jump through our news of the week first before we get to the topic of this week, Metropolitan Golf Club. Uh, but first, Matty, we've been a bit overwhelmed by. The amount of people who are listening to this this thing in the first handful of episodes that we've done, some of the really lovely feedback and encouragement we've got from people uh, on it, and and the discovery during this week, Maddie, that somehow we're already second on the Australian Golf iTunes ranking, which is bizarre uh, and certainly unexpected. So I guess I want to say thank you to everyone who's who's putting time into listening and uh, giving us feedback, you know, good, bad, and indifferent. So yeah, thank you for listening. Thanks for liking and subscribing, and uh, you know participating on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, and you know, a few people have said to us, "What, what can I do? Do I do a review, or how can I support the podcast?" Really, the best thing you can do is if you've got a if you've got a friend, you know, got, someone from your golf club or someone you think would be interested, send them an episode link uh, for them to listen to, and and hopefully we can continue to to build the audience that way.
2: Yeah, it's it's been really pleasing to. See how far and wide it's gone, and the benefit that people have enjoyed from listening to it in planning trips or just uh, spending time thinking about some of their favorite courses. We started out wanting to do this for the for the benefit of people who were interested in our our top shelf courses and wanted to plan a trip to Australia, and it's it's been really. I know I speak for you, Scott, in saying that it's really satisfying in knowing that people have enjoyed it so far, and we we hope they continue to. Yeah,
0: yeah. and and yeah, some of the Aussie audience, the things that they've been interested in, probably things that we hadn't planned on covering, like you know, weekend away destinations like the Gold Coast and the New South Wales South Coast and the Murray. And I'm just really, I actually love this thing having a little bit of a life of its own and us being guided by the listeners on where we're gonna end up going and what we're gonna end up talking about. So once again, everyone, thank you uh, very much. We appreciate it greatly. Now, Maddie, big week for News of the Week. It's been, it's been wild this week for things that are getting announced and not quite Kingston Heath getting announced as the 2028 President's Cup host, but Royal Melbourne joining Peninsula Kingswood in saying that they won't be hosting it. So all, all fingers point one way, right? Yeah, it's, it's,
2: it's going to be held in Melbourne. I can't imagine who else is going to host it. I, I just assume that the PGA Tour and Kingston Heath have a couple of little details to finalise prior to an official announcement. But that's that's a really exciting thing that it, that it goes to the heath. It'll be a wonderful venue. It'll be fascinating to see some of those guys play that course, and and the the administration and the members at the club will be ecstatic that they're going to act as hosts there. Nikki McClure, their president, um, Matt McKenna, their captain at the moment. They've just followed a tradition of having led that club superbly. It's been making every decision. In the right way for decades, and I suppose this is a little bit of a reward for that tremendous stewardship of theirs.
0: Yeah, and I think it's actually great for Australian golf that the big the big audiences that see the Presidents Cup. Obviously, there's other tournaments that are held, and we'll get to one of those in a second. But the audience on TV for the Presidents Cup dwarfs other tournaments that we have here, and I think it's great for those audiences to see a variety of sandbelt courses. Yeah, you know, to build that that case that, wow, the whole sand belt's incredible and not just Royal Melbourne's incredible.
2: Yeah. People got to look at Metro when the Accenture World Match play was here 20 years ago and everyone a was raving. couple of World Cups as well, I think. Yep. Yeah, a couple of World Cups, one in terrible conditions with rain and wind and cold. And the Heath hosted a World Cup a few years ago as well. Uh, of course, Tiger winning the Australian Masters back in 2009 over, over the course at Kingston Heath. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's great that we get multiple sandbelt courses with international exposure and with great players on them.
0: And so RM's not missing out entirely on on tournament golf. It's been announced that the Asia Pacific Amateur is returning there next year.
2: Yeah, and that's that's a really really neat tournament. I would I would implore anyone listening to circle that week in their calendar and head down there and have a look. The catalogue of past winners of the Asia-Pacific amateur reads, in some respects, like a who's who of world golf, with Hideki having won it twice, Keaton Nakajima having won it previously, uh, Curtis Luck won previously, Harrison Crow, as we know, just won last week, he's making his way to the Masters into the Open next year as a consequence of that win. And that'll be a will be a very different test for a lot of the people in that field. If they get hard, quick greens and a and a northerly wind, I'm not sure some of them will know what's hit them, but it's it'll be compelling viewing, definitely.
0: I assume they'll use the composite for that.
2: Yeah, I'm 99% sure they will. I don't think they'll just go around west. I think they'll think they'll do composite. I'm trying to cast my mind back to when Anthony Medaka won. I think he I think it was played over the composite then. They'll probably just do the same.
0: And then finally maddie late this week <clears throat> there was an announcement out of the tasmanian government about development of a second golf course and the announcement said at five mile beach and i thought oh, i'm mortified for that poor tourism minister who's got the names mixed up and he's meant seven mile beach and then i discovered that matt Goggin is still the figurehead but this is a separate little piece of territory around the corner uh, known as Five Mile Beach. We can only assume, Maddie, that it's two miles shorter than the beach that the existing course <laughs> is built on. And uh, and that's going to be developed... Well, they're going to continue to work with the, uh, with the Tasmanian government through the development process in the next couple of years.
2: Yeah, that's really exciting. So for those who are unaware, Matt Goggin has been talking to Clates for more than a decade about doing something at Seven Mile Beach. Matt was well aware of the potential of that land a long time ago. It's been a a very, very lengthy process in terms of getting access to Crown land and permits and construction and clearing pines from the site and whatnot, but it it really is quite an expansive area there. You you can spy it if you fly in low from the west as you come into Hobart Airport Um, or if you go back onto the Instagram account of Seven Mile Beach and have a look at one or two aerial shots that people have posted as they've been flying in. The Seven Mile Beach site occupies really only a modest fraction of that entire land down that neck of the woods. There's a huge sand mine that sits not too far away from the course. And I can remember Clayton and Matt Goggin years ago talking about the potential for a second course not too far away that was a little more sheltered and and much more heathland in feel, and I presume that's what's going to happen at Five Mile Beach in times to come. I mean, it's incredibly
0: encouraging that they're pursuing a second course Before the first one's even opened, I really suggest that there's great, strong government support to make this a success and to really, you know, change the tourism proposition in in southern Tasmania the way, I guess, Barney did for northern Tasmania.
2: Yeah, I think they've probably got a state government that's sympathetic and and understanding of the tourism benefits. Someone probably remembers Mike Kaiser talking to them and to Richard Sattler about the 1 plus 1 equals 3 proposition. Barnboogle's doing much better with a second course not just not just better but much better and we see that all over the place where a second course is built and then subsequent courses are built whether it's Cabot whether it's Bandon other places around the world so yeah that's that's a a great a great step by the Tassie government and it will really affirm Tassie as a, as a, as a major international destination for golfers with, with two courses at Barnboogle, if we include King Island within the, the confines of Tasmania and now these two layouts, that's, that's, a, that's a compelling trip.
0: Yeah, and I think what a second course does, I recall when Tom Doak was designing the loop at Forest Dunes in Michigan, the owner of, of Forest Dunes talking about the fact that I've got one golf course and people come and play it on the way to somewhere. And, and possibly there was the potential that Seven Mile Beach was the course you would play after landing at Hobart Airport and then drive to Barnboogle. What a second course does is increases all of the off-course spending, boosts accommodation spending and food and beverage spending in that area because you all of a sudden mean you've got to stay for at least one night if you want to see all the golf. And, yeah. uh, and I think that's where that one plus one equals three really adds up off the golf course as much as just on green fees. Definitely. Now on to the star of the episode, Maddie, which is Metropolitan Golf Club, uh, also known in our in our text exchanges as Liam Hemsworth, just Liam. We're gonna we're gonna review Liam this week, and I've gone back and listened to our first episode a couple of times when I've received mean comments online from from people at Metro who heard it, and it kind of feels when you read their feedback that I said something a lot worse than I did. In summary, it was that a friend of mine in the states had described where he lived as. An amazing place to live, but you don't need to come and visit. And I guess I suggested that maybe that was that was metropolitan on the sandbelt, uh, and you know made it made a comparison, I guess, to Royal Melbourne West being Chris Hemsworth uh, and Metro being Liam Hemsworth. I guess that makes Kingston Heath Elsa Pataki maybe, but I don't want to force that that comparison any further. But I guess Metro's got a really strong history in the game uh, for a reason. Uh, it's a great championship venue. It's, um, it's probably not on as good a piece of land as the as the sandbelt courses that it maybe ranks behind, and we'll get to a bit of discussion about, about why that's important um, in the context of this course. But I thought I was reading back through the, the updated confidential guide, Maddie, that uh, Tom Doak did. About three or four years ago now, his comments on Metro, and I think that they're a good jumping-off point for our discussion. and And he writes that Metro is a fine club with all the facilities to serve as an excellent championship site, and it had established itself as a premier course on the basis of immaculate conditioning before Royal Melbourne hired the greenkeeper away. The golf course is very flat, but then so is Kingston Heath. What Metro lacks are the variety of holes and particularly the intimacy of some good shorter holes that makes its neighbours so memorable. And across the board, the the four, the four authors of that book all give Metropolitan a six, which I guess in shorthand is, you know, seven is a candidate for world top 100. So certainly not a criticism of the course at all, you know, praise for the things that do make it special. And I think the thing that I guess I didn't say in the first episode, which I think is relevant for people who are planning a trip, is that it's easy on paper to rank courses and say, well, you should go and play this one because it's better than this one, or you want to see better land on the Sandbelt, so you should see Victoria or whatnot. The reality for most people who are visiting or who live in Melbourne or are going to play on the Sandbelt is that they might know a member at one of the clubs and not the others. And you know we've talked about the fact that the disparity between a member's guest green fee and a visitor green fee is often the difference between say one hundred and then four or five hundred dollars. So you know no one is suggesting, and certainly it was not not my intention to suggest you you don't go to Metro and that's just a blanket rule. You go to Metro and play golf. You're going to have an incredible day. You're going to see some really great stuff. Uh, and if if a Metro member invites you for a hit. You'd be insane to to say, "Oh, no, I'm going to go and spend four times the money, a couple of k's up the road, and see something marginally marginally better."
2: Yeah, I think that's that's a good summary of your position. I think it might have, yeah, your views on it might have been a bit misinterpreted by some who listened in the first episode. I know that I know that we were on the same page when I was talking with you earlier in the week about uh, my my most recent visit to Metro earlier in the year. We had a course swap day with them. I was looking forward to getting there and probably spent much of the fortnight prior to that visit in some sense of eager anticipation, thinking of particular shots I'd hit, uh, particular holes I'd play, and true to form, it was a great day. It was a tough day with the wind and, and the weather that day. It's been a wet winter down here in Melbourne and a cold winter down here in Melbourne. Conditions at Metro were sensational, as they always are, so yeah that probably that probably just echoes the 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 positive views that so many people have of the course it's interesting to talk to people who come to melbourne for a for a multi-day trip and they they make their way through various sandbelt courses they're all keen to have metro on that list it's one of their must visits and they they know about conditioning they they go there expecting flawless fairways and bunkers that eat into greens to the point where the edges seem laser cut and if you're not careful you can putt into a bunker so there's yeah there's definitely some stuff there that's really enjoyable and challenging and worth
0: seeing. So, what are your favourite things about Metro, Matty? Be they holes or features, or what do you think it is that Metro does really well, or that's really a highlight of the visit there?
2: There's particular holes that I really enjoy playing. I never score particularly well there. I find it I find it's a bit too much for me on occasions. I love three. I love five. I love that little 19th, the, the the most recent addition to the course, that new par 3 that sits in between 5 and 6. Love having a lash at 16 if the conditions are right. I enjoy having gone to a place with a storied history like Metro as well. I feel like the place just oozes history. Sarazen won an Australian Open there. There's been some great players visit there over the decades. I remember Westwood winning his Open there. Um, lots of different things yeah it's it's always been a really hospitable club the times that I've gone I felt like the members have made visitors very welcome its conditioning's always really really good and i enjoy that but i imagine that there's a lot of people who will be nodding their heads in agreement they're really big fans of of immaculate conditions
0: and they must just lick their chops when they know they're going to go to metro so absolutely get... yeah i think that's you mentioned the 3rd and the 5th and for me when i think about metro and i think about what i enjoy about it you know, it might lack a great short four or a risk-reward par five, but its mid-length par fours are really the interesting holes, often a drive and a pitch or a drive and a short iron, can be dumbed down a bit in the modern game. Uh, with, you know, the kind of launch and spin and whatnot, it does reduce defences a bit. But I think Metro's got a really great set of those holes and even some of the longer, longer par fours, like 15 is is a really magnificent example of how you can take a flat piece of land and build a really incredible intriguing hole the bunkering does all of the heavy lifting in that and there's just a little bit going on at the green to make it to make the angles really matter that's what short fours and short threes and scorable fives and whatnot are are the sexy holes and they can they can cause you to feel strong emotions, which makes you kind of apply those emotions often not to the the shot or the moment but just to the hole like the hole did that and I think metro metro really punches hard in those in those two shot holes, and there's some really tricky stuff that all that'll get you like the fifth green just you're hitting half a wedge in, and the shaping of the front means that if you're not really precise with your Spin and your launch and the shot you want to hit, you see a lot of balls just trampling over the back, and maybe it takes some time to realise that's the architecture doing that to you and not just bad luck or a bad shot. But those are the things that I think are often they're often a feature of flat ground golf is little subtle little things that play a big role in a hole. Metro's got a lot of that going on. Definitely,
2: there is some intricacy to their green contours as well and into those green complexes. This little this little swales and runoffs and you only need to be a little bit off and suddenly face a delicate up and down or a, a challenging pitch from reasonably close to a, a pin. I found myself in positions like that on one, eight, all, all over the course. Yeah. Uh,
0: and with how but- f- with how firm that golf course is maintained and the speed of greens on the sandbelt generally, but particularly, you know, Metro's one of the ones that really has their green toned little slopes can make a big difference. When the ball's going to bounce and roll and there's not that much grass under the ball and it's, it's going to keep moving, it's just a little, bit of, a little bit of slope can really cause big outcomes in a shot. Yeah, and particularly on
2: some of those holes, some of those longer fours that you mentioned, and I'd add, I'd add 17 and 18 to those in, into northerly winds. We'll get to couple. 17. Last... <laughs> I, thought, I thought we might. Um, the last couple of times I've visited off hit a lot of club into both those holes and and you you need to be precise and, that, and the challenge of that just gets escalated enormously when you've got such a long club in hand on approach. So,
0: Yeah, and a lot of what you're describing and you talked about not traditionally having scored well there, I'm in a similar boat. I remember the last time I was there just before COVID, I... I walked off chuffed with how I'd played and I had 29 Stableford points. And I think that's probably a leading reason, Matty, why it's been such a, such a regular host of big tournaments uh, and, it's, and its ability to separate the person who was able to play the right shot, will identify the right shot and then talented enough to hit it versus those who aren't having as good a week. Um, it does, I think, do a good job of, of rewarding great play and punishing anything that's not up to snuff. Yeah.
2: And probably probably breeding a generation of, of pennant players who get it out there with driver and do become very good at controlling trajectory and spin on approach as well and really try and leave no stone unturned to make sure that they've got a short club in hand on approach for many of those holes. So Yeah
0: and um on that on that point Maddie. so lucas michel uh has been kind enough to agree to join us later in the episode to have a chat about metro now obviously lucas won the us mid amateur in 2019 he uh then went and played in a couple of majors as a result of of winning that tournament he's a i think four or five time champion with the victorian state team in australia he's as accomplished an amateur as you can get and he moved to Melbourne after high school to study and and came to be a member at Metro. And I'm interested to chat to Lucas a bit about why and how he chose Metro. Um yeah, as a as a really top Australian amateur player, I had the choice of quite a few of the Sandbelt clubs. And I think for a player of that ability, I think Metro would would be a great place to be able to make sure that you can really sharpen your game. To be as good as it needs to be, if you want golf to be your livelihood, definitely. I'm I'm interested to hear what he talks
2: about uh, in terms of his experience of playing the course as well, and how it how it primed him for that next step, how it groomed him to be such an accomplished amateur player.
0: And obviously, it's Mike Clayton's long term home club. It's Sue O's home club. It's it's a club that's that's turned out some very good players. Yeah,
2: Todd Sinnett too. There's no shortage of good players to come from there, um, and and some of that's got to be attributable to the course, doesn't it?
0: And now Metro, if we go back, you know, just a hundred years or so, Metro is one of the the Melbourne clubs, Matt, that was that was bred of dissolution of old clubs and moving to new sites, but then where a lot of the lot of the clubs that did that sort of settled in the first 15-20 years of this of the last century and developed their course and by and large that's what the course is today metro had a fairly significant impediment in the late 1950s and lost half its course
2: yeah they had they had moved to south oakley decades earlier and most of the stuff that you read on the course history and the club history sings the praises of many of the holes that no longer exist on Metro's layout. They they, they would have sat to the south of where the 6th Green, 12th Green, 13th T currently sit. In the late 50s, they were uh, the subject of a compulsory acquisition of some of their land that now is home to Oakley South Primary School. And that acquisition necessitated the course uh, rerouting and some new holes designed as a part of that it's interesting going back and listing or reading the course and club history the uh, club was motivated by what real melbourne had done in securing the services of alistair mckenzie in the 20s so metro put a call out internationally whether it was from england or the us they decided to try and get the best man that they could and they had some preliminary interest from robert trent jones interestingly enough But he was committed elsewhere at the time, and they eventually settled on Dick Wilson, who received a glowing endorsement from the United States Golf Association. Interestingly enough, going through Metro's club history, they had embraced a plan eerily similar to what Royal Melbourne had done with Mackenzie decades earlier. While he was in Australia, Dick Wilson was out on loan to a variety of other clubs for more than £200 a day. And those other clubs included Huntingdale, Yarra Yarra, Coringal, Sorrento, and the lakes. So he did a little bit of consultancy work while he was here, much as McKenzie did with clubs other than Royal Melbourne when he was back here in 26. Dick Wilson
0: left a little bit less of a, of a legacy and a bloodline behind. Not quite quite the McKenzie legacy. Um, I reckon, I reckon most would
2: struggle to think of anything else that he did in Australia apart from that reworking of, of Metro. So a lot of that new stuff is, is really his handiwork. 14, 15, uh, the short for 16th, par four, seventeenth, 17th with those cypress trees on their right side or middle right side. Yeah, so that that must have been a tumultuous time in the club history to have got a couple of decades down the track, be very happy with your course, have hosted Sarazen during an Australian Open, only to get a a, a tap on the shoulder from the state government saying, oh, by the way, guys, we're going to pinch some of your land and you need to rejig things. I can't imagine what that would be like
0: yeah and as you say a lot of that a lot of the review from before the mid to late 50s when that happened refers to holes that were lost on the piece of land that was lost and it seems from from the anecdotal you know handing down from people who played the old course that the land they lost was significantly better than the land that they got for this new back nine and i think when you know metros a reasonably flat golf course from go to woe but the best land really is over and done with by probably the sixth green you know so you do you know you do play over some smaller but interesting undulation on that that first six holes potentially they've lost seven or eight holes on that land and that might have been you know that might have been the difference between a you know Kingston Heath kind of level site and the site that that Metro's got now
2: yeah. And and as you said when we were talking about preparing for this episode, not every club and every course starts out with the same equal canvas on which they lay a course. And I, th- I thought that was a really, really good observation that you can you can only make the best with of what you've got. And and whether that's soil, vegetation, size, topography, and and it, it gets harder if you if your land is not sufficiently undulating or dramatically undulating. It it, it gets hard in terms of um, highlights of design on occasion. It can sometimes just complicate drainage as well amongst other things more technical issues but yeah to to lose to lose something that would have had a bit of movement to it and and some good holes on top of it that would have been it would have been a very bitter pill to
0: swallow yeah i mean when you look at when you look at ranking lists the the great courses are on predominantly they're on sand and they're predominantly on sites that have some undulation and and movement to create interest and really you know, it is that it is that fact that without a piece of land of a certain quality you're not going to build a golf course of a certain quality and perhaps some great architecture on lesser sites gets gets overlooked in favor of you know land that was so good that the golf you know could just be put there and maybe metro you know falls into that into that equation because certainly when you when you kind of drill down into what's been built and we've talked about you know, the quality, you know, when people talk about sandbelt bunkering, I feel like they're talking about Metro, even if they don't realize they're talking about Metro, it's just that synonymous, you know, when they talk about the difficulty of the bunker play, you know, if you can hit good bunker shots at Metro, you can hit good bunker shots anywhere, because that's, you know, the stuff that's been built there, the greens you talked about, the subtlety of the shaping that accentuates the architecture of the holes, A lot of that stuff that is up to the person doing the building and not up to how the land formed is is really difficult to criticize.
2: Yeah, that's so much of their bunkering is emblematic of what people associate with that region. The firmly packed faces, their proximity to the putting surface, firm bases. Yeah, they Metro has that in spades.
0: And it's, it's often, like, it's a, it's a very fine line because <clears throat> when I think of great land for golf, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, Royal Melbourne West, you know, Pine Valley or Sunningdale, these grand parcels that have got big shapes and big slopes and large landforms. But, I mean, I think there's an argument to be made that a course like Kingston Heath or Royal Adelaide potentially closer to, perfect terrain for golf than those those bigger scale and undulating courses and so you know metro is not much flatter than those sites but i feel like there's just enough there that can be taken advantage of with with kingston heath and royal adelaide to create some slightly more striking and interesting architecture and a more interesting walk over and around landforms rather than on flat so it's you know it's not it's a shades of gray thing uh Mm. it's certainly Different people will also take very different views. There'd be some people who would say, I'm a moron and Kingston Heath's a terrible site and it's too small, etc. But yeah, you know, for my for my taste, and maybe it's just as I get older, I prefer a course like Kingston Heath or Royal Adelaide under the legs than some of those harder walks.
2: There was a thread on Golf Club Atlas a long time ago asking people to nominate a course at which they could remain for the rest of their lives. And there are a number of experienced posters who i really admire and recognize them for their intelligent contributions and they were many of them were listing royal adelaide and kingston heath i can walk around there i don't feel tired i can keep playing there when i'm older it's it's in a climate where i can play 12 months of the year it drains all all those things that you said both on the podcast and also when we've just been chatting so yeah it doesn't doesn't have to be doesn't have to be the himalayas does it
0: no that said there's a there's a school of thought that you can't be a great golf course without a great short four, and I think Metro probably falls short of that of that marker, and and that doesn't have to be a matter of land. I think that there's something about that sixteenth hole that you mentioned, you know, an appetite for for having a rip at it, and maybe it's just the field that it finds itself in on the sand belt of of some of the most incredible short par fours in the world. That for me five is a is an incredible drive and pitch hole, but in terms of a drivable four, you know that's maybe something that that is falling a bit short at Metro.
2: Yeah, in comparison to its siblings, we think of we think of the examples at, well, fifteen at Vic, one at Victoria, uh, which I probably enjoy more than most people do. But Yeah, I agree. Just just love that hole. I think it's fantastic. Three at Kingston Heath. Ten uh, West, Royal Melbourne. Ten West, uh, five five East. Five East. Yeah, you, you can you can keep going with a few short fours in that neck of the woods and think, oh, they're sort of all above sixteen at Metro. I. I would go there with a spirit of enjoyment more often than not. I'm, I'm not playing in board events at the club. I'm not playing for monthly medals, and I've invariably not got much of a scorecard to hang on to by the time I set foot on the 16th tee. So I invariably have a lash at it. Yeah. Uh, if I was playing, if I was playing qualifying rounds in clubbies, if I was playing for trophies, it, it would definitely be more of a point-to-point hole for me. I'd, I'd have something shorter in hand on the tee, and I'd be leaving myself a full wedge on approach. I'll be interested to hear how Lucas talks about playing it and whether it varies much depending on circumstances or if he just hits a low-bullet-cut hybrid into the front-left trap and gets up and down for birdie from there 99 times out of 100. I'm not sure. That'll be that'll be an interesting part of, of chatting with him in a second. Maddie,
0: I'm certain he does something that will make you and I feel completely, <laughs> utterly emasculated.
2: Yeah, yeah, this. That's a game with which we are not familiar, and that's
0: probably something that's worth remembering
2: for the people that want to sort of superimpose their experiences or or mesh Lucas's comments with their times around the course. He he hits it a mile. There's not going to be a lot of listeners who are generating his clubhead speed or his his tee shot distance. So
0: it does make me think, though, there's something to be said for. A course that is challenging if you if you're really trying to become a better player regardless of what your handicap is if you want to you want to test yourself somewhere I think there's there's a little x factor in that and I know before Tom Doak redesigned and Brian Schneider redesigned Concord in Sydney that was my club in Sydney that it didn't rank highly and yeah architecture crowd would turn their nose up at it but anytime I went to Concord I'd get a bit excited about going to see okay how good am I playing at the moment. And cause it was it was very exacting. You could make a score if you were hitting it really well and putting well, but there's something in that and it's not it's not in the in the golf architecture lexicon, but I think golfers golfers even those those ones who are most motivated by architecture, we we love to challenge ourselves and compete. I just think it's one of those things that that is a tick in in Metro's column above Probably any of the other sandbelt courses, when you are, whether it's as you say, clubbies or pennant or a monthly medal, when you want to kind of test yourself and, and feel some pressure, I think it's a good it's a good place to help you feel it.
2: Yeah, it's it's stern face would be more stern than most others, I think. Made me try and generate a forward course review, thinking just while you were while you were speaking there, Scott. We might we might save that for when Lucas is with us. It's interesting. I, I hold it in. Really high regard, and I, I enjoy my times there and, and view the course reasonably fondly, despite the fact that I've never really torn it up there. there Yeah, there's some stuff that just might be a bit too much of a challenge for me, and I reckon 13 is that that par three, the new par three that has sort of been rejigged once or twice. What's well, it's too difficult for me, I fear it might be too difficult for many of the members there. That's a, another another question without notice for Lucas when he when he joins us.
0: I think that there's there's something to be said often for holes that have been rejigged a handful of times. There's a reason why they've been rejigged a handful of times. And I don't know if some little pieces of land are just a bit cursed or tricky, but I agree with you that that's, um, that's too much shot for a, for a lot of golfers. And, you know, I suggested as much to Clates to one time and he looked at me like I had three heads and he said, well, you just hit a high five iron. You just cut a high five iron in there. It's not actually that hard of a shot. I said, Mike, do you understand how few people on the face of this planet can cut a high five iron like that's not that's not a shot we have He said oh well, it's you know it's way of practice isn't it so i've got I've got a proposal for you for that little that little piece of land because I also think it's unthinkable that the best part three on the property being nineteen, which sits in between five and six and actually is as natural a walk as possible it doesn't even it doesn't even kind of not fit in the routing in terms of walkability it's the best part three on the property it's a little probably an eight iron or less for most people to a really steep what do you call it like a postage stamp green kind of thing I think think it's a wonderful hole and it it really is different to a lot of the other part threes you know eleven and two do have some similarity, albeit playing in opposite directions. So I often think that if it were up to me and I was, and I was the czar of, of Metro, I'd bring 19 in to the routing. Of course, then you'd have a front 10 and a back eight, but you'd live. You'd blow up 13, 12, I think is another hole. That's pretty good, but there's something about it. That's not quite what it could be. And I'd love to see a little drive and pitch hole that essentially gets you from the 12th tee to next to the 14th tee. And then that would also allow you to, to punch 14 tee back. And what is, you know, a two shot par five for the for the best players these days would, would perhaps gain a little bit more in terms of challenge. And it's also got that magnificent little cross bunker that's about, I want to say 80 yards short of the green, that, for less and less golfers with technology is, okay, how do I get my, do I, can I get over it with my second shot? Am I laying up right of it or short of it? I think that would restore 14 to maybe more of its intentions. Yeah, a longer,
2: a longer tee shot definitely brings that bunker into play for more people. It would fortify that 14th. I, I like that scheme. I reckon it allows you a lot of wins. You get to, you get to make little refinements to 12. You've got a genuine three-shot par five there in 14 as a consequence for for the vast majority of players, and and most importantly, 19s in the rotation. I don't see any problem at all with the 10-8 split. I don't see any need for returning nines. Like you come back, come back close enough, soon enough. Anyway, with 10 holes, that's it's no issue for me. I don't think it'd be an issue for members either.
1: So there
0: you go, Paul Mogford, Neil Crafter. You can have one for free. <laughs> you can have that one for free and then I'll wait five years and I'll tell everyone that I was the architect of those changes. So that seemed to go well recently for someone else who did that. But the back nine, it does have a couple of moments that are really cool. And um, and 15, we talked about, 14, 15 is a fantastic, you know, for, for land that has not a lot of features and you're looking at, you know, a three-shot par five and a long par four, which are holes that don't often get a lot of love. They really have a really important place in that round for me. And one of the things I really like about what they've done there uh, in the last probably six or seven years uh, since Crafter and Mogford took over from uh, Ogilvy, Clayton, Cocking, and Mead as the consultants for Metro, I feel like they've really restored a lot of the Sandbelt characteristic to Metro. I first played Metro in 2011. And it certainly felt to me then, uh, and on the same, on the same trip, I played a fair bit of the sandbelt and it felt to me it had much more of a parkland character than sandbelt. And the vegetation and the grassing was very much, you know, it was more heavily watered. It lacked the variety of vegetation in the off-piste areas that give, you know, I think it's one of the things that gives sandbelt and heathland golf. An advantage over any other type of golf is the incredible amount of colors and textures you get on the property. It is this kind of sensory overload of you know it frames the golf holes really nicely without you needing often people you know big trees frame golf holes, but so do heathland plants and sandbelt type vegetation and I've gone back you know I, I, I always take way too many pictures of every place I go, but it means I, you can go back and gut check your memories. And then looking at those pictures this week really was a reminder of a golf course that you know it some of its real benefits were being hidden Uh, and i'll whack some pictures up because completely by accident um the third hole which is one of my favorite holes on the property i i got exactly the same shot in 2019 as i did in 2011 of the t-shot and of the approach and i was able to get an aerial of um, the green and then the, the transition to the fourth tee. And as they have at 14 and 15, three to four is a great example. Crafter and Mogford have reintroduced or introduced these great freeform teeing grounds that are short grass all the way up to the green. And just the connection between green and tee is incredible. And maybe maybe one of the leading examples on the sandbelt of that but also just on the edges of holes, you know, there's there's those sandbelt plants where 10 years ago there was two-inch Uh And those have been the things that I think, you know, you can change a course a lot without changing anything at all. And what Metro has been able to recapture in that time I think has really, has made it truly feel like sandbelt again.
2: Yeah that's it's a really important distinguishing feature of the region's best courses they have that richness to them in terms of native flora that that so few other courses around the world possess occm had started to do some of that around the the time that their their tenure came to a conclusion i remember they they'd replanted that huge swathe between 5t and 5 fairway and they were starting to work on an area down near 16 and 17 where the soils are heavier and, and much less conducive to that rich diversity of small plants that the other clubs in the sandbelt possess and, and cherish. Uh, Crafter and Mogford have really picked it up and run with it. Uh, much to their credit, they've, they've continued that theme of enriching the landscape and you're right. It adds a texture and a beauty to the place. I know wine lovers talk about wines with terrar and oh, so in other words a, a wine that is would you say
0: uh like a sense of place yeah linked yeah connection linked, to the, yeah, connection to to the soil place. yeah
2: yeah and I, I think that i think that that vegetation work that has been started at commonwealth we we see it more and more at metro now that's it's a real positive and it's really important
0: i think the the importance of it too um is is signified by clate's mentioned to us last week when he was was our guest on the on the podcast that he and Harley Cruz have been retained by Yarra, Yarra to be responsible for vegetation of the golf course. Of course, Commonwealth has has had a separate uh golf architect to vegetation architect. And I think it shows the importance that clubs understand of the replanting and the vegetation management as a completely separate consideration to the architecture of the golf. Yeah.
2: Yeah, there's, there's there's definitely people in that space these days who really know what they're doing and can bring a huge amount of knowledge and experience to that element of course maintenance and course updating and renovation. And it's it's really interesting to see so few other parts of an urban landscape possess that richness and and that remnant vegetation. I think that's going to be a, an enormous saving grace for golf clubs surrounded by metropolitan sprawl in times to come, there'll there'll be these little oases of of places that you just can't erode any further because they hold something that's really precious.
0: Yeah, and we we talked about previously, you know, golf social license, particularly in urban areas, and that's where I've already seen um, you know some examples on the sandbelt where the only place where certain plants are known to still exist is on on a sandbelt golf course. And that really is a tangible, you know, we talk a lot about golf's value in biodiversity of flora and fauna, but that's a perfect example of no one wants these plants to disappear from from the face of the planet. And were it not for that that focus, the sandbelt does this really well on on protecting and defending that indigenous um, flora and fauna. Some of this stuff's just going to go away. You're right. Now, um, on a of, sli- on the other side of the coin, Scott, <laughs> I think we're going to the same place. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Can we if, talk if, about offensive flora? Let's go for it.
0: If there the was trees on the seventeenth fairway are the most unforgivable thing I've seen on a great golf course anywhere on the face of the planet, and I can't understand how in 2022 they're still standing there blighting that hole. It's, it's not great. It's, um, Any goodwill I got back at the start of the episode, I've just captured But, just, just but honestly, up. Metro in an afternoon could lift themselves by nuking those three trees.
2: I could understand hanging on to one. So for people less, less we should post. We'll see if we can we'll find, find a, a good photo of them. So they're Swamp Cypress. And they've been on that site for decades and decades. And prior to the course being reworked by Wilson, those trees served a different purpose in a different location. But we now find them in the middle of the the short grass on the penultimate hole on the course. And they really squeeze that driver landing zone. And they're not super attractive to look at. They're not Indigenous. Interestingly enough, and I, I had a friend tell me this during the week we were talking about his most recent trip to the course he thought something would have been done to beautify that area on the banks of the the little dam that sits between 17 fairway and the back of 14 green and there's another little area of water through the fairway on the 10th metro as well which that's that's changed a little bit but there's probably scope to enhance that landscape a little bit as well and i'm I'd be fascinated to see if there was someone out there who was really nifty with rendering, like those Harris Kalinka guys that did the flyover of, of the short course at Kingston mm-hmm. Heath. If they wanted to reimagine that hole with some landscaping work and those trees gone, I don't, I don't think many people would be upset with what they saw.
0: No, I, I mean, let's, let's flip it around. If the trees were gone, no one is going to play that hole, which has a low-key fantastic green one of the best greens on the course i think it's got this great little front left kicker slope and big fan of the green no one would walk off that hole look back and be like you know what that hole needs is three swamped cypress in the middle of the right hand side of the fairway that would and it's not it's one of these things that like i talked about with with lost farm if ross watson built a 20 hole golf course people would say that was stupid and so you can't turn around and say to bill core what a visionary like i i just i and it's all opinion i don't think. I don't think that's a good thing. Morphantane has the 13th hole was a par three, has a big tree literally right in the middle of the chute, blocking the middle of the green. That is also monumentally stupid. Like this is not, this is not, if it's at a world top 20 place, it's genius. And if it's somewhere else, it's dumb. I just, you know, the drive on the first at Stonecutter's Ridge, Bob Harrison and Greg Norman, gigantic gum tree, stupid. I don't think it adds to the golf and the arguments that you hear for keeping it don't stack up to it makes the hole better. Agreed. Yep. (laughs) The defense rests. I didn't realize how much I hate those trees until I just started talking. It's always been in the back of my head, but, and I just think it's very unsandbelt. It's at odds with what they're doing on the other 130 odd acres of their land to make it a pinnacle of sandbelt golf. I really do struggle with it. And as you said, you know, the penultimate hole. And often we find you walk off and and how you feel about the round is often really strongly impacted by how it finished. You know, 16, 17, 18, I think is a really wonderful finishing hole, well bunkered and a really smart green. And I love the space around that green. It's probably something that Metro does really well Um and you can probably tell me if it's involved change over more than the decade that I've known it. Kingston Heath does really well. That open, just lots of open space around the clubhouse, connecting with a lot of different points on the golf course, um, and I love, I love that about the finish at Metro. That that space that it has.
2: Yeah, it's a really appealing element of that of that part of the property. I I enjoy it when I walk out, and there's just this huge. Expanse before you, much as you experience when you drive into Kingston Heath and you see the practice fairway and the first and the sixth, and it just unfolds before you and keeps going. That's a it's a yeah, it feels like you're settling into a warm bath. You think there's a practice fairway there, there's a practice green there, and there's heaps of space between clubhouse and 18th green, which must be a, a, a super practicality for the club when they host big events. Yeah, first, yeah, first tee off in the distance, and in an age where. Clubs will feel hemmed in by urban sprawl. Metro certainly don't have that. You make your way out of the clubhouse under the under the famous tree there and, yeah, there's just oodles of space. feels yeah. great.
0: Time to bring Lucas in? I think so. I think it's, um, you know, we've had our say and now, you know, we'll, we'll swap some opinions of people who can probably count on two or three hands their rounds at Metro versus someone who can probably have rounds maybe in the four figures. So be good to hear what Lucas thinks and maybe we'll run our Run some of our opinions by him and see if he if he thinks we're wrong.
2: Yeah, we might be in for a heavier edit than usual, depending on what he says. Let's <laughs> let's see. Beautiful.
0: Okay, so now that you've heard what uh, a couple of infrequent visitors to Metro think about the course and a little bit about the history of the club, very kindly, uh, Lucas Michelle, long-time member at Metropolitan, has joined us to to give us the expert's view. Lucas, thanks very much for your time.
1: No problem, Scott and Matt. Thanks for having me.
0: We are um we're really interested in, in what you've learnt about the course over a really long period of time playing it super regularly. But jumping in today to do a little bit, I wanted a bit of homework just to look at how many times you've probably played the course. And what struck me when I looked at your, at your golf link record with, with Metro over the past five years, 11 times you've gone around in a played to plus six or better three times you've had 80 or more that includes a played to plus 8.8 last January when you shot 63. My first question just is how, what does it feel like to be that good at golf?
1: Um, i don't know i think i think i don't think i'm very good at golf because it's all it's all relative you you always compare yourself against people that are better than you so i'm always thinking how i can get better and i don't sometimes you don't sit back and think um i'm I'm pretty good at this but yeah i'm always trying to get better i think every golfer is so it's not something i really think about that often i suppose
0: it's a very humble answer yeah I'm curious going back, Lucas, to when you moved from, from Perth to Melbourne to start university. I imagine being quite a high level junior amateur in Australia. Curious about the process, I guess, of being scouted or joining a club on the Sandbelt. Do you recall what that experience was like?
1: I do. I, I remember it quite well. So I was a member of Lake Caranup in Western Australia and probably has the best reciprocal list almost in the world. I think every single sandbelt club we had a reciprocal relationship with. So I I really had my pick of the the bunch. I I had the general manager at the time, Damon Lonnie from Lake Carranup, who's now at Royal Melbourne. He sent some emails to to different clubs in Melbourne. Um the three were Royal Melbourne, Kingston Heath and Metro. Cause I think as well, I think he at the time had a, a very good relationship with the general manager of Metro. And I think that was the one that we had uh, reciprocal membership privileges with, which meant I could join uh, for three years without paying a joining fee and just pay the junior rate or whatever the correct category was for myself. So I remember obviously had those letters of introduction to the general managers. I think I rocked up to Kingston Heath to play and it was kind of like a ghost town. There was like no one there no one really greeted me at the time. You know, that the club was told that I was a plus one handicap or something like that. But they I, I think there was very little interest in, you know, pennant golf from Kingston Heath at the time. Like this was 2011 or so. And it was similar at Royal Melbourne as well. But then going to Metro was really different because the, I was greeted by the pennant manager at the time, Hamish Richardson. And he, you know, I played with him, I played with the assistant manager, I played with one of the young players, who's now one of my best friends. And we really hit it off. They were super friendly and accommodating. And I ended up coming away with very little doubt in my mind that that was the club I wanted to join. Even though being someone of like very interested in golf course architecture, I knew the other two were world renowned world class golf courses. It just felt a more natural fit to to join Metro at that time so yeah that was kind of my history with with, with choosing to join Metro and I, I've never really regretted it you know as much as I could say i you know I'd love to be a Royal Melbourne member and that was definitely possible I think I am really grateful that I did choose Metro and I think it's changed my life in a really positive way and in a number of ways like one of them was meeting Mike Clayton and having a really strong relationship with him from almost day one of my membership there Um, obviously Clates is a member and we would play golf every week at at least once maybe twice you know in those first few years that I was a member there and you know I learned so much about golf golf history golf course architecture and ultimately in 2019 I started working for him and I don't I don't know if that would have happened if I joined one of the other two clubs so I can't say what the experience would have been like at Royal Melbourne or Kingston Heath but I can say i'm really really glad i did join metro
0: it's interesting those you know way leads way in your life and and experiences and interactions you have kind of change your path but also that golf clubs and golf courses are completely different propositions and you could arguably have a course that's top 10 in the world but if the club wasn't your kind of people you're not going to have a good experience there i think that's one of the things that's so critical about joining a club it's kind of where do i belong and it sounds like Yeah, Metro from the first day, really. Yeah, similar kinds of people.
1: I definitely. I think. I think the club at the time was really focusing on developing good young players, juniors. They introduced the junior scholarship program. I think in about two thousand eight or so, which was basically certain select golfers would get free membership of the club for one year, and then were able to join after that. They didn't pay a joining fee. I think the Metropolitan Foundation paid the joining fee. So. At the time, they had a lot of young, good up and coming players. And for someone like me who was taking my golf really, really seriously, it was just a great fit to be amongst young, like minded people at the club. And, you know, those people have matured and a lot of them haven't actually, you know, gone on to become pro golfers. I mean, almost all of them haven't. Um, and they're really, really interesting people that I enjoy playing golf with as I, you know, grown at the club. And then you've got, you know, the guys that have gone on to become really, really good players, guys and girls. Like Suo and Todd it, Blake Colliers and Pro in the last few years. So there's still like a really good bunch of young players on top of that who've actually had the success too, which they've been great to be around and watch them succeed too.
2: We were uh, we were talking about that prior to you joining us, Lucas. We were extolling the virtues of the course in being able to cultivate a, a generation of really good high-level amateur players. Dave Michaluzzi was another of that category. Mm. A look back through your your, your women's club champion catalogue as well. You mentioned Suo. Yeah, we think we, we attributed some of that to the course. So you feel that's a quality of the course?
1: I think so. I think it's almost like the fairest precision kind of type test of golf you can have because i think good players tend to like it because it's quite flat so you don't get the unpredictable bounces and randomness that come into maybe lynx golf courses or even your Royal melbourne's which have maybe a bit more contouring interest in the fairways and then you know there's a sense of consistency in a lot of the design if you take an aggressive line you're rewarded. And if you execute, you're rewarded with a better angle. And it it probably doesn't have maybe the nuance of some of the best courses in the world, but it's a very classic clinical test of golf, which I think prepares golfers pretty well for the large majority of golf courses anywhere in the world.
0: Do you recall how your appraisal has developed over the years of the course? And obviously you've spent, particularly in the last three or four years, you've done a lot of travel in the U.S., You've become a golf magazine rankings panellist. You've seen probably 70% of, you know, the 150 best courses in the world at this point. How's that coloured your perception of Metro, both appreciation of it and also kind of a critical eye of it?
1: I think I always, when I travel, I'm always excited to come home and have better context of how good Sandbelt courses are and how good my home course is. I think Metro is a great course. And I think, yeah, playing all those courses that I have played, it definitely gives you a better perspective of maybe where it sits. I think... As well as that, I think the course has gotten better since I've been there. I think they've done a lot of good work on opening up some views. And, you know, there's been marginal improvements to actual architecture, but a lot of it's come around the peripheral kind of, tree clearance and native flora, getting rid of some of the clutter that was there. And I think you can't really forget about that sort of stuff. It's improved maybe in my mind, getting better context of, okay, this place is really, really good, but it's also actually uh, directly improved from changes that they've made, which is good. But yeah, I think one thing that i found that maybe I didn't appreciate about it initially, and this might've come as a result of some of the tree clearance, but it's a much bigger property than people maybe realize. Like, a lot of the sand belts are really kind of crammed, they're, they're kind of crammed into a small space generally like Kingston Heath's quite a small property, about 120 acres or so I think and and a lot of those sand belts are in that sort of 120 to 140 acres for 18 holes and I think Metro's around 170 so with the routing it's got more ability to change direction. It's it's a square plot rather than a skinny rectangle like Huntingdale or Yarra Yarra or even Kingston Heath to an extent. So you don't have so much of the north south orientation of a lot of the holes, and you actually can get a bit more change of direction and have have more of the holes playing to different points of the compass, which. I think that's something that it took a little bit for me to appreciate. And I think thinking out some of the trees in spots makes you realise the sense of scale that's possible there. And I think more could be done, particularly around the back nine to do that. But I think something that I've yeah come to appreciate about the course over time.
0: So speaking of the back nine, I'm curious of you as a now a young golf course architect who kind of understands some of the practicalities of building. What would be if you were directed out to the back nine by the committee and told that you needed to come up with a solution to some of the challenges there? What what would that look like?
1: Well, I'm on the Greens committee, so <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I, I kind of have a little bit of a say, but I think Look, the back nine was built in the 60s or late 50s, I think, early 60s. And it was by a different architect and it was on a different piece of land. It was not as great as great soil, I think. And they did everything they could to make it feel like the front nine as best they could. And one of the things they did was they planted a lot of trees that were mainly planted because they grew fast and not necessarily because they were the best specimens. But the idea was, well, let's plant the trees that will grow fast and make it feel as mature and as old as the front nine and then I feel like now a lot of those trees have kind of crowded out places and it just doesn't it doesn't feel like the front nine anymore and that you know they're trying to achieve something and maybe it wasn't the right way to do it maybe the right way was to be a bit more patient and fill it out with the right specimens but in terms of the architecture there's probably a lot of it's actually been fixed to an extent if you look at some old photos of some of the holes there was a lot more mounding and kind of a regular kind of some odd sort of features on the back nine than the front nine I think and I think even I think Wilson came into the front nine and actually did some 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 work on the front nine or whoever was building the work for Wilson did some work to try and almost like kind of bring the the two nines together a little bit by doing some changes on the front nine as well and I think a lot of that's been undone but there are some some strange shaping and mounding on 16 particularly and then 17 it's a tricky one because the dam was expanded in about 2009 or 8 i think right when we had our drought in melbourne and the the decision was made to expand it towards the 17 hole so you've got this dam wall that is really an engineered feature right up against the right hand side of 17 on the approach and it's really quite obvious once you i mean to anyone playing the hole that that's not a natural feature and how do you mask something like that and you know you could probably do it with some shaping but the row of five swamp cypresses i think would have to go to make that happen so i think in order to make something a bit more natural i think you would remove those you could do some work definitely around 17 and 17 green maybe pull it back away from the ant a bit give yourself a bit more space in there get it maybe a little bit further away from the dam do some clever shaping work and some revegetation vegetation around the dam wall. And then 16 is a really cool green complex, but I think there's some mounding around there along with the the containment-type mounds along the fairway, which I think were spectator-type mounding built for a bunch of tournaments that were had in the 80s and 90s. So there's definitely some improvements you could make on top of, um, yeah, some, some trimming back of some of the vegetation and trying to promote some of the more low-growth indigenous type heathland species as well so there's not actually that much i don't think that it needs i think it just needs a little bit more love which hopefully it gets
2: we've seen a little bit of that work with revegetation on the front nine so far that occm started probably a a decade ago lucas and then and then crafter Hmm. and mogford seem to have carried on with various Mm -hmm. spots throughout the course before you joined us we were we were talking about that and how it just changes the texture and feel of the place and probably turns things up another notch.
1: It does. And I think a lot of clubs in Melbourne are realising that. And Metro's, I think, probably doing maybe not the best job at it, but like pretty close to one of the best jobs at managing the, the local floor. I mean, Raw Melbourne has done the best job because they never really lost it. They've kind of got stuff that's pretty much remnant in a lot of spots and they do a good job of trying to enhance that as well Um, and Kingston Heath's done a great job they're probably a little bit ahead of the trend compared to us but I think since then I think Metro's probably done just as good a job as as anyone
2: yeah I'd agree I think what they've done in front of that 50 area and and some of the Mm -hmm. the more difficult areas in which to work on the back where we said Mm -hmm. that the soil's not so great they've they've managed them really well
0: and I think um, on that, you talked about kind of an expansive piece of ground, but the changes, 14 to 15 is a good example of that short grass into, a, into the open teeing area. It accentuates that feeling of spaciousness rather than segregating yeah. green and tea with, you know, longer grass in between. Just that mm-hmm. extra extra short grass just makes it feel as big as it really is rather than splitting holes up into discrete sections.
1: Yeah, and I think part of me having an appreciation for for the expansiveness of the site is changes that like that that they've made and realizing, wait a minute, the Metro's, you know, it's got a lot more scale than I, I realised. You know, when you when you make a change like that. Like particularly I don't know if you ten to eleven T and the eleventh hole now, they've trimmed back a lot of the the trees between sort of ten, eleven and eight. And it's amazing how Big and grand of a golf hole, eleven now feels when it used to really be hemmed in by some pretty big eucalypts. So I think that's that's probably of those examples. That's another one that I can think of that's made a huge difference to how that hole feels. In all
2: of your travels around the world and seeing different courses, Lucas, is there a comparison to Metro that sticks in your mind? Like a sister course in another land? Yeah.
1: That's a good question. That's probably not something I've thought about. There's got to be some somewhere in America. I'm just trying to think somewhere where maybe it hosts tournaments That's it's kind of flat. I don't, I don't know something. I mean, almost like a winged foot, maybe, yeah. you know, yeah, like a Wingfoot West a little bit. I mean, the greens are way cool at winged foot West. Like they're some of the coolest green complexes, but Yeah, I think, you know, Wingfoot, it's a a fairly plain piece of ground. Like, it's not the most interesting piece of ground within the five kilometer radius that it's on. You know, you've got Quaker Ridge and, you know, Westchester Country Club and a bunch of really dramatic pieces of land around there, but it's the test. It's the best championship test in the area. So I think that's probably maybe a bit of a bit analogous to to Metro.
0: Lucas, I always thought. Uh, Walton Heath Old reminds me a little bit of the flatter courses on the sand belt. Hmm.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, definitely Kingston Heath vibes there for sure as well, the more open nature of, of that course. But you could definitely say Metro has a lot of the traits more at, from that. You know, Walton Heath Olds a great championship test as well as Metro and Kingston Heath. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of similar similarities there. I was really
0: curious if there's a hole that you initially underestimated that you've really grown to appreciate.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. I think the seventh, the long par three, I was trying to think of like the really good long par threes on the sand belt. Let's say 200 metres plus, because there's actually not that many that are over 200 metres. Yeah. And I think you've obviously got 16 west at Royal Melbourne. But then I think Metro's seventh is a bit underrated because it is just definitely, you know, from the back tee to a middle pin, it's 200 plus. And it's got this really subtle right to left tilt. Which you know, if the pins on the right, you never want to be in the right trap. If the pins on the left, you can use that slope to feed a ball into the left pins at the front left are really different to anything else on the you know in the middle or the back right. It's just got a lot of nuance for such a simple golf hole. Which is you know, it's a simple two hundred meter par three, but it just has I don't know, just just there's a lot to like about it, and and it's a really interesting hole I think. Particularly depending on the wind direction and where the pin is, it can change a lot. So. I think that's one that doesn't get a lot of attention, but I really like. That's a good I shout.
2: Did. I was going to say that most amateurs probably just hit something really long and hope they get close to the green, and mm, they probably don't recognise that subtlety. We we played mm-hmm. at the course swap day that we played mid-year. I played with a couple of guys who were really good, and mm-hmm. one had commented on the tee. We, we had a sort of front left, middle left pin, and mm-hmm. it just did not want to miss right. And mm-hmm. I, I thought, God, I'm just... Hanging on here anywhere near the green's good yeah. for me. Yeah. And I got up there and I realized what he was talking about on the tee. And and you've gone and said mm-hmm. precisely the same thing. I've always looked at it and thought, oh, it's pretty nondescript. It's a long yeah, slog to that a- hole.
1: Uh but yeah, there's, yeah, there's- I think it it's like like Scott asked in the question, it's it's just some one that's sort of grown on me and that i I guess appreciated over time.
0: Those are the qualities too that we go there. Once a year, even or you know, a traveling golfer might play it once. They're never yeah. going to pick up that quality of the hole.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can it? Can, it looks a bit like a plain Jane. Like it's not. There's not much to it. Um, and I think that the tee could move five to ten meters further right. I think there's a bit of tree trouble on the left, particularly for the poorer player who primarily hits a bit of a slice. But I think you know, as a golf hole, it, it looks simple, but it's it's got a lot more to it than people give it credit for. Which I think I think that's a really cool aspect to it. And maybe that's, maybe that's almost like a description of Metro in general a little bit.
0: If you have to make a birdie on any non-par five hole on the course for your life, which hole are you choosing?
1: I think probably 16 because I can basically drive it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's I, I think it, the green's very interesting, but I think the tee shot, it's quite difficult, the tee shot for a poor player, but it's quite easy a good player because basically a good player who can drive it near the green will basically just have a pop and be in one of the bunkers anywhere around it and be a good chance of getting up and down depending on the pin obviously you can short side yourself and have no chance but but yeah i think that's the one for me just because i'm i feel like my bunker play and short game is pretty solid so it's basically a, a chipping comp once i tee my ball up i know i'm gonna have something around the green or sometimes on it for my second shot so
0: I feel like that also reinforces what a good golfer you are, that you can describe being in a greenside bunker at Metro as a desirable outcome. You know, there's, <laughs> there's plenty of people that lie awake at night thinking about having to hit a bunker shot at Metro, and you're like, oh no, I want to be there.
1: Yeah, I guess so, yeah. I, I think the sandbelt bunkers, it takes a while to get used to. I obviously caddied a lot at Royal Melbourne, Metro, Kingston Heath, and it, it's a different technique to play out of sandbelt bunkers. And I think your guests that are coming to Melbourne, they need to spend some time in one of the practice bunkers. Whatever course they get to first, they need to spend half an hour in a practice bunker, finding the hardest spot on the practice bunker, like where the, where the sand's firm. Because that's the other thing. These practice bunkers on, around the short games areas get so much more play than the ones on the course. So that the sand tends to be softer and looser, whereas you get on the golf course, because they don't get as much play, they get a lot more compact. So you need to find the hardest spot in the in one of those practice bunkers uh, with, with the sands packed in and firm and just spent half an hour figuring out how to how to get shots out because I reckon of all those people I caddied for that was the biggest thing they struggled with was getting out of the bunkers and it just once you get it you're fine but you just it takes a bit
2: it's a great shout it's um people should commit that little passage to memory when they're visiting the sand belt um do you have a favorite hole on the course
1: I think the fifth always gets mentioned and I think it's a really good hole it's got it's a, I mean, you can't really say it's a great piece of land, but it's, it's kind of the, the piece of land with a, with a bit of interest at Metro. Six has got a bit going on as well. I think it's, you know, a really good classic par four. It's about 360 metres off the back or so. It's, it, it's a sort of challenging tee shot, particularly from the back for me. Um, it's sort of tea tree lining both sides. So it's somewhat penal for, for a better player, but it, it's pretty wide. But yeah, you know, you want to be down the left side. You want to take on the left bunkers because the greens kind of got a a, a pretty vicious right to left slope. So if you go down the left, you're kind of playing more more into the slope than if you go down the right. But I think the most interesting part of the hole is the green, which has kind of like a front nose, front sort of almost like a pimple to it. And it complicates approach shots because when the pins, it doesn't really matter where the pin is, but if the pins up the front, you've almost got to land it and the green's a fame, you've almost got to land it short of this little pimple and just judge it to perfection. And then if the pin's up the back, you've got to land it just past it. And and then depending on where the wind is, you've really you really got to think about your approach shot. And it's and it's clearly there right in front of you. And you know what you've got to navigate, but you've really got to think about how you deal with that. It. And it's just this this fairly small feature, but it it makes the second shot so interesting into that green. I think that's that's probably once again, like the seventh, it's a simple piece of design that can play so interesting.
0: Would you have nineteen as part of the main routing if it were up to you? Entirely up to you. We've established it's partially well, up to you.
1: Yeah, I, yeah. I think I think I probably would. I think it was originally part of the somewhat part of the course. I mean, it, there was a hole in that general vicinity when the course was laid out and it was considered the sixth hole uh, back in the day. So I think going back to that, I mean, it's it's a really cool piece of ground. It's got a bit of undulation. It's all sand. It's got good vegetation around it. It just fits in really, really nicely into its landscape. So I think I probably would, because I think it probably is a better hole than maybe 13. The only thing is you pull out 13 and you don't have a par three from, you got four par threes until the 11th and then you don't have anything after that and that kind of feels maybe a little bit unbalanced possibly then where do you lose a par 3 did you lose the 11th or the 7th or yeah, like but then i mean you could lose the 7th or you can make it a short par 4 there's but then i've just told you how much i like the 7th so yeah. <laughs> i don't know there's a lot of things to think about when you start doing that because when 6 was a par 3 when you played the 19th as 6 there was also par 3s at think 15 and 13 as well maybe so there was a bit more sense of balance in how the court the kind of the progression of the routing went so i don't know it's it's a tough question and i'm sure wilson wasn't thinking about that because he always thought that the the sixth had to go because the 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 road between metro and um huntingdale was going to be expanded and that the fifth grade would have to move somewhere to where the sixth, uh, sorry, the 19th grade currently is. So there's a lot of decisions he made that were based on other factors. So it's kind of, it's, I don't know, it's a tricky one.
0: Yeah. I mean, the 11th is the last pass through on the old course and that doesn't seem to hold it back.
1: That's true. Yeah, there's always there's always an example from... The old course tends to be the world, exception
0: but... to every rule as well. You know, if you're yeah, trying to yeah. find the exception to a rule, yeah. think about the old course.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: All right, well, mate, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate the, uh, the input of an expert.
2: Thanks. Thanks for the insights, Lucas, and uh, keep playing well and keep up the good work at Seven Mile Beach.